Hey, I'm Nate. If we haven't met yet, someone say hi, Nate. Hey, good to be with you guys. Um, I told Rob as he was walking off stage, like, I kind of don't even need, need to preach now, right? That was awesome. I, I love these, these mornings together celebrating what God has done. And if you, if you haven't followed Jesus in obedience and baptism, I, I just want to ask you, what are you waiting for? Um, we would love to, to baptize you. And so we don't have to have a, a, like a special service, but just sign up on the website and, and let's get you dunked, all right? Sound good? Someone say, yep. All right, all right. Hey, um, I want to start this morning um, as we're opening the word together with with a confession, okay? Hold on now. You ready? Um, I've never been able to see the image inside of those magic eye pictures. (sighs) Yeah, I know. Hey, like, like, put, put it up for me here. Can you guys see what that is? You know what I'm talking about? You're like, I didn't know there was a magic eye picture. Yeah, it must be magical, or um, I had a friend in Connection Group tell me, like, there's some conspiracy, because I've never actually seen that. And now Jesse, who, who was helping lead worship, that dude drives me crazy, because he's like, just cross your eyes and back up, and you'll see it. It's not a big deal. I'm like, I don't see, do you guys see what that is? Anybody see that? All the way in the back? Don't, no, you don't actually see it, whatever. Like, I've never been able to see them, and so I kind of don't believe there's anything there, right? If you were born in 2000, you're like, I don't even know what that is. Whatever, man. Okay, it's called a magic eye picture. Google it. Um, I, I've, never, I've never seen what those are. I, no matter if you tell me to like get right up next to it and squint in your eyes and then back, whatever, I, I can't see what's supposed to be there. And maybe you can't either. That, that's good. We're on the same page here. Um, but there's something else. I, at one point, I kid you not, my dream job was to be an art historian. Okay? You're, you're finding out all kinds of things about me. Um, put up the next slide for me. Do you know what this is? Little splotches of paint. You're like, yes, it is. Cool, totally. Um, there, there's, a, there's a painting that you could go see in Chicago right now that it doesn't work the same as a magic eye picture, but it's one of those that you see people. If you walk by it, you see people all the way up, and then they start to back up looking at it. Let, let me give you the backup view. Put, put it up for me. Have you guys seen this before? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah? It's a famous example of something called pointillism, where the artist put these tiny little dots of paint to make up a bigger picture. Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jatte, by a guy named Seurat, 1884. I did want to be an art historian, totally. We could talk about, you know, all the, the style, what was going on, all this stuff, but, but all of a sudden when you, when you see the bigger picture of what it was, it's not this magic eye painting, but you actually, you start to see the beauty and the depth of every layer of it. This is why people, when you see this in person in Chicago, you get up close to it and, and people almost like their faces are so close to it because they're looking at every dot of paint until it becomes this beautiful picture. Again, if you didn't know this was made up of tiny dots of paint, it would be like, it, it's whatever, it's another thing. But once you know a little bit more, once you see it from a different perspective, you start to see the layers of beauty and depth. Like I don't get magic eye paintings, but I love, I love this and I get it. I think the, the little girl's white dress might be the only um, like solid thing that's not, that's not just dots of paint in there. Okay, we're not here for like an art history lesson, whatever, but, but there's something about perspective. There's something about seeing things where, where I think if you don't relate to magic eye pictures or, or art history, you might relate to this. Have you ever been in a situation where you were, you were so close to it, you could, it was all up in your face that you couldn't actually get the right perspective on it? Like maybe you've had a friend and, and they're in a bad relationship and you're like, if you could just take a step back and breathe, you would see that he's not right for you, girl. Get out of there, right? Or maybe it was a friend going through addiction and you're like, man, do you see how this is like hurting you, hurting people you love, ruining your life? Maybe you've been in a job and, and you, 
You leave every single day and you're like, I don't even know why I do this anymore. Like you've lost this sense of perspective because you're so close to it. You're, you're in the weeds. You can't, you can't get out of it. There are lots of situations in life where sometimes we are so close to the issue or the struggle or the whatever, we can't see it properly. And so something that makes sense to, to someone with an outside view, a bigger perspective, it doesn't seem to, to click for us until we can take a step back and breathe and process. I was listening to a podcast and a guy in the military saying like, like sometimes you get so in the action you just have to step back and breathe and, and, and get a wider feel of you, get perspective. Someone say perspective. We're gonna see an example in Mark chapter six of a moment where written in scripture, it basically says, hey, the disciples didn't have enough perspective. These men that, that walked with Jesus, that literally watched miracles happen in front of them and, and got to participate in some of these things, they, they needed to step back and see a bigger picture of Jesus because they were missing it. And let me just ask you, could that be you this morning? Like maybe you viewed this whole church and faith thing like a magic eye picture and you're like, people keep saying there's something there, I've never seen it. I don't get it. Is this some big joke? Maybe you don't even know why you're here this morning except she dragged you here and... and but there's something about it. People keep saying, I see Jesus here, and you, you've never had the eyes of faith to see him. Well, last week, Rob was preaching and, and, and used this phrase, familiarity bring, breeds contempt. People grew up around Jesus, so they were so familiar, they, they, they wrote Jesus off. Maybe in your life, you don't have contempt for Jesus, you just kind of have apathy. You've gotten so used to being around Christianity and the Bible and this stuff that it, it doesn't move you anymore. You've gotten so used to these stories that they just become another one of those things Jesus does. You're not amazed. You're comfortable. Maybe you and I today need to take a step back like the disciples and get a bigger perspective of who Jesus is and what that means for us to actually find the kind of joy and freedom that people were just declaring on stage a moment ago. You ready for that? Someone say, yep. All right, Mark chapter six, starting in verse 30. Last week, Rob um, unpacked Jesus going to his hometown, Nazareth, where they, they grew up around him and so they couldn't see him for who he was. They wrote him off. A prophet has no honor except in his own, uh, no honor in his hometown. After that, Jesus sent out his disciples on this mission trip in, in pairs, kind of ministry teams, evangelism done as a team, declaring who Jesus is, but also casting out demons and healing. And then there's kind of this interlude where we're going to have John the Baptist who, who was declaring that Jesus was going to come. He's executed by Herod, this unjust king, because he's calling out sin in Herod's life. Jesus has said John the Baptist is, is the one that came in the spirit of Elijah. He was the one meant to prepare the way. He's the last sort of Old Testament style prophet. He's the answer to the promise at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi, saying one is going to come to prepare the way. That Jesus says, hey, that, that one was John the Baptist but he's killed. And now we, we pick up with the disciples coming back from this mission trip that Jesus had sent them on. Look at Mark chapter six, starting in 30. Let's see where we need to get perspective in. And just, just so you can orient yourself, we're gonna look at it through three different layers, three different perspectives. We're gonna have a historic perspective, a prophetic perspective, and a personal perspective. Does that sound good? All right, let's do it, come on. Verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. They're coming back from this mission trip and they're giving a report of, of everything that had happened. But I want you to notice this. They're called apostles there when they've been called disciples before this. An apostle means sent one, someone who's been sent out. 
It becomes a term to talk about the, the main group of Jesus' followers, but at this point, it, it's a direct tie to what they had just done. Their identity changes because of the action of Jesus. Do you get that? Jesus sends them out so they become sent ones. When Jesus shows up in your life, he changes your identity, not because of you, but because of him, right? Their identity has now changed. They've become sent ones because of the work of Jesus in their lives. I tell them everything. They're given this report of what they've seen and done. Verse 31, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. Someone say desolate. Desolate is a really emotionally kind of charged term, right? I don't know if you've ever been in a desolate place, a desert, a wilderness, whatever, but, it, but at this time they didn't have highways, you know, they, they didn't have towns all over the place within driving distance, whatever, so a desolate place to them would be very desolate. Like you're, you're getting off of every, every road, every pathway, every whatever, off into the wilderness. And this isn't the main point of the text, but let me just tell you this. Through seasons of, of ministry in Jesus' life, he has this pattern of, of ministry, of movement, of whatever, but then coming away, being refreshed, being with the Father to get the next marching orders, right? There's a pattern of rest in Jesus' life. And, it, and again, the point of this passage is not a command for you to rest, but it's a pattern in Jesus' life. It's a principle. If your life is so full that you have no space to go away and be with Jesus, your life is more full than God has intended. Like if your schedule is so packed and booked that you see Jesus going away to be with the Father and you're like, I could never do that, maybe you are more busy than Jesus wants you to be. Okay, again, that's not like the point of the message, but I'm just telling you, okay, maybe even as we talk about this perspective stuff, maybe part of your issue is you're doing so much stuff for God that you don't actually have time to be with God, okay? All right, let's keep going. Sorry, not the point of the message. Let's go. Um, they had no leisure because there's people coming and going. They've heard about Jesus, and Jesus says, all right, we've got to get away. We've got to be with the Father. We've got to be refreshed after this mission trip. Verse 32, they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. 33, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So when he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. This crowd, they've, they've seen a bit of Jesus, and so, so they're, they're just going to track wherever they can to go to this boat, and they're going to keep following the shoreline around the Sea of Galilee, anywhere they need to go to be with Jesus, to be around Jesus, because they've heard of what he's like. Even if that means leaving their towns and villages and, and tracking him through to this desolate place just to see Jesus and be around him. And it tells us what Jesus was feeling. He had compassion on them. He doesn't view this crowd as scenery or machinery. They're not in his way, but, but it's ministry. These people present this opportunity for Jesus to, to love them and shepherd them. And look at what he noticed. They were like sheep without a shepherd. It's like, a, it's like an insult to call people sheep these days, right? Sheep will fall on whatever, blah, blah, but, but this was like a true condition of them. And when sheep don't have a shepherd, they get into trouble. I'm not like a, like a sheep herder or shepherd or whatever. I didn't grow up on a sheep farm, but, but I know enough to know that like sheep can panic. They can follow after something that catches their attention. They can wander and get into all kinds of trouble. In fact, I saw a video of a, of a trail runner this week who was like running in the mountains and all of a sudden this this group of sheep, like this flock of sheep, I guess it's called a group of sheep, whatever, this flock of sheep started following this trail runner just wherever. And so this trail runner is like, dude, is this, okay? like what is going on? Where are these sheep going? And the sheep just would follow them wherever because their, their attention had gotten onto to someone moving, someone that looked like they were leading, and they just kind of kept going, right? These people are like, well, I, I don't know where to go, but Jesus is going there, and I'll just kind of flock to, the, to this desolate place. Here we go. 
His heart is moved by that. He's not annoyed. He's not put off. Even when, when it totally interrupts their plan and goals, he, he's making space for these people and he teaches them many things. Now, this passage doesn't focus on exactly what he's teaching them. It's not an emphasis on his teaching, but, but you've got to see even as Jesus does miracles, he teaches, and as he teaches, he does miracles. These, these work together. We're going to see a miracle here that you might have seen or, or read about or heard before that maybe has become very commonplace to you. But again, as we look with this historic perspective, try to put yourself there with these people, real people, giving an eyewitness account of what they lived through. Try to understand what it would have been like to be with them here. So verse 35, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now getting late. They, they have come back from this mission trip. They're tired and exhausted. They were planning on getting some time away. Bro's trip across the lake. Let's do this. Let's get refreshed. And now they've been doing ministry all day long. So they're kind of stating the, the basic facts. They're like, hey, Jesus, let's, let's talk about some things we agree on, right? They're almost setting them up like, it's a desolate place, right? We've been saying that the whole time. Go to a desolate place. We're in a desolate place. It's getting late, isn't it, Jesus? Like, okay, you agree on that? We have a plan of action for you, man. Like, we know, we know what's next. We know the right answer to this. It's a desolate place. The hour's now getting late. Verse 36, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. This seems logical, right? We've got, we've got these facts, and let's just get these people out of here, man. Like, let's get back to the agenda, get back to the plan. We need some refreshment. Send these people away to go get some food. Now, one thing we've got to notice historically is that there weren't 24-7 grocery stores. There weren't restaurants that you could just roll up into and get food. These people had walked from a long ways to be with Jesus and be here. It would have been a long walk back. And when they would get to these villages, some of them would have markets. But at a market, you'd bring your produce or whatever early in the morning, and then you'd sell it and you were done when you were done. They weren't having regular shipments in. It, so these people might walk a long ways to a village and show up and there'd be nothing for them to buy. Again, they didn't have restaurants, so, so essentially what would happen is the disciples would say, go, go knock on doors and see if you can find some food. Good luck. I don't think they meant to be like cruel or, or unkind. I think they were just hungry and tired themselves. And so they were just trying to like get these people out of here so that they could kind of get on with it. But, but how does Jesus respond to that? He's already been moved with compassion. Is he just going to send these people off and good luck sheep, wander on your own way? Verse 37, but he answered them, you give him something to eat. All right, now I don't know if you've ever been like, man, it'd be so cool to be with Jesus. Dude, he would have been frustrating, Right? It's like, are you kidding me, Jesus? Like, we've been together all day. You know I don't have like a buffet in my backpack here, man. Like, how am I supposed to give him something to eat? Jesus would do things like this where he would, he would flip their expectation or, or force them to confront it. He's like, go ahead, you give him something to eat. What do you mean, Jesus? Like, what do you want from me? And they said to him, shall we go out and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? This is almost like a sassy answer from the disciples. Like, really, Jesus? 200 denarii was like eight months worth of wages if you work six days a week. A denarius was like one day's worth of wages. So like, eight months worth of food. You want me to just go off and buy eight months worth of food from salary? I gave everything up to follow you, Jesus. <laughs> like, I don't have that money lying around. And where am I supposed to go to buy this food and bring it back to this crowd? Are you kidding me? They're trying to just show Jesus the, the reality of the situation, and, and he's almost doing the same thing to them. They're like, this is so desperate. There's no way we could go get food for them. And he's like, Exactly. Exactly. You just need to see these, these details to see what I'm about to do. He's trying to invite them into this moment so they get a front row seat. And Mark records these details so that we can see and understand too. Don't pass by this story. Don't, don't look over the details of it because the details matter to see something bigger here. 
Verse 38, he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. If I was with them, I'm spiritually tired, I'm physically tired, I'm hungry. It's not just been a long day, it's been a long past few weeks as I've been traveling around and, and, and Jesus tells me, how much food do you have for you and your friends to eat supper tonight? Like this is all we've got for us. So are we supposed to take the only food we've got and break this up and give this to this massive crowd? Are we going hungry tonight, Jesus, just because you feel bad for these people? I don't know about you, but I would have been maybe a little scared, frustrated, maybe annoyed with Jesus. I hate to say it. This is all we've got for us, five loaves and two fish, and, and we've got all these people around. Do we give them each a crumb? Really? Verse 39, he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass. He didn't ask them. He said, hey, sit down. So verse 40, they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. This gives a sense of how big the crowd is, right? It's not like, hey, sit down in your families. It's like, okay, you need to organize in groups of fifties and hundreds just to even make sense of how big this group is. Taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven. He said a blessing. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He divided the two fish among them all. So, so he's forcing the disciples right in the middle of this, right? Hey, this bread, this fish that you gathered together, now you go and hand it out. Through your own hands, you've got to go give these people this food and see what happens. You get a front row seat that your perspective is right up in it and you're going to see what I'm going to do. In verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. Someone say satisfied. Not just a crumb, not just a little bit, not a mouthful. They were satisfied. They ate enough to be satisfied. And more than that, verse 43, they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And some accounts of this say, and not including women and children. This is amazing. This is, this is an insane kind of miracle. Now, the, the people on the edges of the crowd, they might not have known what all was happening, right? If you're, if you're among a crowd of more than 5,000, you're off on the edge. You just get handed some bread and fish. But the disciples who we've been tracking with this whole time, they had a front row seat passing it out to people and watching it never run out. And then gathering up more than, than they ever had to give to the people. You'd think if anyone gets it, they would get it, right? If anyone could see who Jesus was, they would see it. But, but we're gonna find out they... They still need a little perspective. And, and maybe you've read this story in like a Jesus storybook Bible or something. I read it to my kids, whatever. Maybe even those details don't wow you anymore. It's like, yeah, this is a cool thing Jesus does. Again, we might need some perspective to really get this too. But keep walking through the historical perspective with me. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into a boat. That's a very marked term, right? Action, movement, these things are happening immediately. Go into a boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. They still need rest. They still need refreshment. So he, he kicks them out. He sends them off before he disperses the crowd. Get out of here. Verse 46, after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Now again, if you were too busy to spend time praying, you're busier than Jesus and that doesn't seem like a good spot to be in, okay? I don't know what needs to shift in your life, but if Jesus needs to stop and pray and be with the Father, I might too and you might too, Okay? He goes, he prays, he's with the Father, he's talking with the Father about what's next in ministry, where they're going. Verse 47, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on land. Mark is drawing you into the details so that you can see this, like catch that. It's important to understand. They're in the middle of the sea, Jesus is on land, 
what's going to happen. Verse 48, and he saw them making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. They're tacking back and forth through the wind, and these are experienced sailors. They were fishermen on this lake, so they understood how to do it, but all night long, they're going back and forth, back and forth, trying to get to the other side. And about the fourth watch of the night, so between three and six in the morning, they've been doing this all night long, he came to them walking on the sea. No one else in the Bible does this. This isn't some miracle that a bunch of other people did that Jesus is another one of those. Like, nobody else walks on the sea but Jesus. He's walking out on the sea, and what is he doing there? He meant to pass by them, like, oh, uh, excuse me, just going to squeeze on by, right? <laughs> like, oh, sorry, didn't, didn't know, whatever. Like, he's trying to pass by them, verse 49, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. They cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. They, they, they were seeing something happen in front of them, but they didn't understand. They were scared. They think this, this must be a spirit, a ghost, something like that. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. They hear his voice over the wind and the waves. In verse 51, he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. But look at verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Mark is saying there's something about their perspective and their spiritual condition that's connected with with this miracle of the bread and fish that they got to hand out with their own hands and this miracle of Jesus walking on the water. They don't get it. They had a front row seat to these things. They were in the boat when Jesus stepped into it off the sea and they still didn't get it. Maybe we might need a little help getting it too. Maybe we might actually be forgiven if we, if, we, if we see the details of the story, but we miss the bigger thing going on. And if you're a skeptic about the Bible and you, you read things like Jesus walking on water, you're like, whatever, dude. I, I was there too. When I was an atheist, I would read stories like this and be like, there's some logical explanation, whatever. But these, these eyewitnesses were experienced sailors. There wasn't some sandbar that Jesus was walking on in the middle of the sea. He wasn't on another boat or, or anything like that, just kind of cruising along and, and hopping out. There is no natural explanation that you can conjure up to try to pretend this. And so if you find your heart instantly grabbing for some way this must be fake, maybe you have a perspective problem. Maybe it's not a Jesus problem, it's actually a a you problem and, and you don't want to see it because you know if you see it, something like what's happened to these people might happen to you. All right, sorry. Get back into it. We got one more section before we get into the prophetic perspective, okay? The what happens when they get to the other side? Verse 53, when they crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. They ran about the whole region, began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Still no rest, still people gathering because when Jesus shows up, you know something's gonna happen. Wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. As many as touched it were made well. A few weeks ago when Rudy's preaching about the man who's possessed by a legion of demons and Jesus frees him and he says, hey, stay where you're at and tell everyone what I've done. And he goes throughout the Decapolis, these 10 cities saying, this is my story, this is who Jesus is, this is what he's done, declaring what Jesus has done. And the people that heard those stories see Jesus show up and they're like, oh, I want some of that. I, I'm sick, I, I, don't, I don't have all that that guy had going on, but I, I need some of that. And, and they flock here based on the testimony of what Jesus has done. Okay, that's the historic perspective, walking through what it was like to be with these people in this place. 
I had an Old Testament professor who uh, was an atheist, and he, he knew a lot of details of the stories and stuff like that, but he, he was missing it. For him, again, this was a magic eye picture, and he could never see this, the picture in front of it. But how God wrote and organized the Bible is it's full of prophecy and fulfillment and finding fulfillment in Jesus. Real history happening to real people, but, but with a greater story that God has written over the top of it. Even in the Old Testament, there's prophecies that, that seem pretty clear, one to the other, right? The, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a child, and then we see Jesus show up, born of a virgin. There's some prophecies that feel really clear and connected, or Abraham, you and Sarah are going to have a son, and they do. But there are other times that through real history, real events in people's lives, it's like an echo, like an arrow pointing to Jesus. If you've heard Matthew's account, over and over he says these weird things like, hey, and Jesus and, and his family when he was a kid went to Egypt and came back to fulfill the prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son. It's like, wait, that wasn't, that wasn't what that was in the Old Testament. But over and over the real history that happened to people in the Old Testament, God uses that as an arrow to point to the reality in Jesus. This is what I mean. Let me show you here. As, as we read through this, it's supposed to trigger some Old Testament stories and pictures for us, okay? Like when we read there like sheep without a shepherd, it's supposed to trigger in our minds shepherds in the Old Testament. Like a, like a shepherd king named David. You guys heard of David? David and Goliath, right? It's a little shepherd boy that becomes like the first truly great king of Israel. Even though he was without, he, he had sin in his life. He, he was a man trying to fall after God's heart. And God gives a promise to him that you will have a son sit on your throne forever. But you look through the history and even his son Solomon, it seems like this great king ends bringing idol worship in Israel. Every time after him, you just see these, these kings that, that should be great, should be good, but fall short. And then you read this and you go, wait a second. Is Jesus supposed to be this like son of David, this true and better king we've been looking for? Is he the shepherd that we've been longing for and looking for? Or maybe when you hear shepherd, another thing comes to mind. Um, Psalm 23, the Lord is my what? The Lord is my shepherd. But now that's talking about God, like the God of the universe being my shepherd, but, but Jesus sees the people and he has compassion and he's a shepherd. Wait a second. Is he the shepherd king, but is he also somehow like God shepherding us and shepherding his people? Or this miracle of multiplying loaves and fish in a desolate place, God feeding people miraculously in a desolate place, it's supposed to trigger in our mind in the wilderness when God provided through Moses manna and quail to feed his people in the wilderness in a desolate place. That really happened to real people in the Old Testament, but it's also an arrow pointing to this moment. It's an echo to this moment of God feeding and providing his people for his people. That, that's Exodus um, 16. Even them sitting down in 50s and 100s, that's kind of a weird detail for Mark to include, but, but it's supposed to bring to mind the organization of Israel into, with elders and, and leaders and things like that in Exodus 18. They're, they're organized like that on this hillside. It's an echo pointing back and pointing forward from the Old Testament promise and fulfillment. As we look at Jesus being like Moses, it's supposed to trigger in our mind a prophecy, a promise in Deuteronomy 18 that God would send someone to be like Moses. This prophet that would raise up and do works like Moses and speak God's words to his people. But you get to the end of Deuteronomy and, and there's this heartbreaking moment where it says and there hasn't been a prophet raised up like Moses. 
It's kind of this commentary on the prophetic ministry of the whole Old Testament. Like, we're still looking for one like Moses. We've had some powerful prophets, but, but that person hasn't come yet. You're supposed to read this and go, wait a second, is that Jesus? Is he the prophet to come, the, the new and better Moses, the one that would, would lead God's people to the promised land through the wilderness? Even the 12 baskets is supposed to bring to mind the 12 tribes of Israel. We're supposed to be going, wait, is Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, come to bring the messianic age, this time for God's people? All of his promises finding their fulfillment in in him, providing for God's people, is that Jesus? And that's just the first miracle, right? The second miracle has an even more important layer to it. When it says he tried to pass by them, he wasn't doing a little, oh, uh, squeeze by you there, right? Like he, he, Jesus didn't feel awkward about that, but that was really intentional. He intentionally sent them out in front of him. He, he set up this moment where they would be in the middle and he would have to come from land. He was passing by them. Just like in Exodus 33, Moses was in the cleft of the rock and God passed by him, declaring his name and his character and his authority. The disciples in the boat were supposed to look at Jesus passing by and see this is more than a teacher. This is more than some miracle worker. Somehow, this is God. Who else walks on water? Who else commands the elements? Nobody else does this. This isn't another one of those miracles. Like, this is different. Who is this one? In fact, there's only one really moment of of walking over the water in in the rest of the Bible. Can you pull up Job 9, 8? This is Job declaring God's character and saying, who alone stretched the heavens? God, Yahweh, the God of the universe, and trampled the waves of the sea. That's the prophetic perspective. The sense of wonder it's supposed to provoke in your heart when you look at Jesus and go, he is the true and better David. He is the king that was promised. He is the true and and better Moses, this one leading God's people to the promised land. He is the Messiah to come, the anointed one that, that our hope was fixed on, the one that would lead us and bear the government on his shoulders. This is God in flesh, a miracle bigger than what we could have anticipated and thought of. Take that in for a minute. But we can still miss it. Like one way you can miss this is you can, you can love those details and those moments and those prophecies and still actually miss what God has for you. I've, I've been in connection groups with great godly men and women who, who know their Bibles and, and love Jesus, but sometimes the conversation stops at this level of Bible facts and information and knowledge. And we can be really good at talking about what some people somewhere should be doing with some stuff and, and never really get to what I need to do how I need to change and how God is changing my heart. Like maybe you have a lot of right answers and, and you're nodding along going, yep, I've heard that, I've done the studies, I've done whatever, but maybe those right answers haven't translated to right living, to obedience yet. Again, one way we can miss this is we can stop at the beauty that God wrote into his word and miss the fact that this isn't just a textbook to study, but God has inspired this word where, where it would be God breathed, where God would breathe on you and you would encounter him as we read this. Again, this isn't just for you to pass some like Bible trivia or something like that. This is for you to meet the God of the universe and know his character, what he's like today for you. God actually wants you to meet him through this word. But when you meet him, he's gonna change you. 
Just like Jesus' action in the disciples' lives turned them from, from disciples to apostles, he might actually begin changing you when you meet him. We've seen the historic perspective, we've seen the prophetic perspective, but, but we need to get into now the personal perspective. And, and I get it, like we're not in a desolate place, right? We're in an air-conditioned room, trampoline park, whatever, in Madison. So even as I talk about like a desolate place in the Middle East, it, it takes a little work to get our, our minds and our hearts there because that, that's not our world. You're not in a boat tossed around by, by the waves in the sea, although if you sail, hit me up, let's go, right? Come on. Um, but even if we're not in a desolate place physically, I think we can relate to that whole sheep without a shepherd thing. I think maybe you felt a, a desolation, a hunger in your soul that needs satisfied in your life, in our city. Too often we can be like sheep without a shepherd. Like if, if you and I looked at the, the people that we listen to, the voices we listen to, the, the, the people that we go to to try to find answers and information, is it, is it a podcaster? A politician? Some, some like, you know, popular Instagrammer, whatever, a pop star trying to offer you satisfaction for your soul? Like sometimes we can treat Jesus like he's a, our relationship guru, our financial advisor, like a great co-pilot and buddy, but, but miss that he actually wants to be the shepherd for us that leads us to green pastures that satisfies our souls. Are you looking for satisfaction? And again, if you're like, hey, I've never seen the magic eye picture, I don't get this Jesus thing, I don't understand what this is, if you prayed and asked God, would you open my eyes? I think that's the kind of prayer you'd want to answer because your soul and mine was made to find satisfaction in relationship with God. That's what you were built for and, and your soul will be restless until you find your rest in him. That's what Augustine said hundreds of years ago. It's true for you and it's true for me today. Are you not in a desolate place physically but spiritually feeling desolate and hungry and empty? Jesus wants to be the shepherd of your soul. He wants you to encounter him in a way that will change everything. And if you've never accepted Jesus, why would you wait? Like, why wait? Romans 6.23 says, the wages of our sin is death. What we're earning for ourselves is we're trying to work hard and, and make our way in the world and prove ourselves and whatever. What we're earning for that is death, separation from the God of life forever in hell. And that's, that hunger in you is just a foretaste of that. That endless pit that, that no matter how much porn or how much booze or how much whatever you, you do, like you can't fill that hole. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Jesus offered to this people was a free meal to satisfy their bellies. They didn't pay for it or earn it. The only thing they brought was their hunger and their desire to be with Jesus, Right? If you've got those two things, come on, you can find satisfaction of your soul today. Bring your hunger to him and he will meet you. It's a free gift from him. He does the work. Will you open up your hand and accept it from him? And even if you're a believer this morning, like, yeah, I did that at one point, come back to him for satisfaction again today. Like, like open your hands up of the things you've been trying to grab onto so that you can actually find satisfaction and hope in this one who really is your king who really is the one leading you to the promised land. The promised land is not another paycheck or a bigger house or whatever. It, it's home with God forever. You can experience it now as you wait for it forever. And again, you might not be on a boat in wind and waves anytime soon, but you got storms in your life. Like you got stuff going on where, 
those troubles and those struggles are filling your view. Like the only thing you've been thinking about as you've been going to bed is the conflict you've been in. It's the stuff you're wrestling through and you can't find a way out. What you and I need is for Jesus to pass by us again. Sometimes he won't stop the storm, but he's going to show you his power over it. He's going to declare his character, his sovereignty, his goodness, his justice, his glory as he passes through the storm. He might not end this storm right now, but he wants to lift up your eyes and your perspective so you can see him in the middle of the storm. And sometimes he gets in the boat and he stops the storm right away and it's beautiful, but other times he's looking for you to trust him and hope in him in the middle of it, right now. Doc said, that's, that's why we gather that's why we sing. That's why we do baptisms. It's, it's in obedience to him and, and to look at him, to put our eyes on him, to get a bigger perspective, to step out of the weeds and to see Jesus again. If you're a note taker, I just want to summarize this, this passage with this. We'll throw it up on the screen here. Seeing Jesus puts everything else in perspective. Seeing Jesus puts everything else in perspective. And maybe what you need to do is instead of writing everything else, you need to start listing those things that you need perspective on. Seeing Jesus puts my job in perspective. Seeing Jesus puts my singleness in perspective. Seeing Jesus puts this conflict in a perspective. Seeing Jesus puts my, my mental health struggle in a perspective. I, I don't know what it is for you, but maybe you actually need to look at Jesus in light of the real storm and the wind and the waves you got going on. We gather and we sing to put our eyes back on him. What, what would happen if we were the kind of people who, who didn't misunderstand about the loaves or have hard hearts but actually saw Jesus for who he was? Who actually did this over and over and over again? What would happen if we were a group of people like that? I think we'd be more satisfied. We would find the satisfaction that he offers and promises. I, I think we'd find security and safety, whatever storms are going on because we would see his power over it. I think we'd be humble in our city, not standing in opposition or anger against our city, but going, man, I can see your hunger. I've got that to come with me to the only place where you will find satisfaction for your soul. I don't need to condemn and judge my city out there because I know that same stuff is true in me, but the only answer is, Jesus, will you come with me? Will you come with me and see him? Doc said, let's, let's sing and pray and worship and put our eyes back on him together. And again, listen to me. If you have never seen the picture, ask him with the, for the eyes of faith right now to see Jesus as the Savior and satisfaction of your soul you need. All of us together, let's pray and invite him to, to lift our eyes up. Yeah, Jesus, I confess to you even this morning as I as I'm sharing this and as I've been prepping, I've needed my eyes to be drawn up to you. There are so many things in life that I'm tempted to fix my eyes on and focus on, but, but I know what gets my eyes is gonna get my heart. Together, would you set our eyes on you to see you in your beauty and your power and your glory. The savior we need, the king we need, the one to lead us home. Would you help us to see you for the beauty of who you really are? And as we see you, would you help us to fall wherever you take us? To share this good news with whoever you put us around and to find hope in whatever storms of life we find ourselves in. We trust you, Jesus. Do that more even as we sing and declare who you are together. Amen.